Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. This is episode 201 of the Swallow Pride podcast, and today's guest is Dr. Meg Folsom. She is a practicing SLP turned anesthesiologist practicing at the University of Kansas Medical Center. Her current projects include research to develop a new screening tool for obstructive sleep apnea, research on post-operative cognitive dysfunction, research on cardiac differences in patients who use marijuana and how that might impact health under anesthesia, and collaborative work with the University of Kansas Biomedical Engineering Department to develop working prototypes for medical device ideas she has created. Most recently, she is trying to come up with a feasible curriculum outline to present to her department in the Department of SLP and Audiology to collaborate on teaching newer graduate students how to perform nasal and oral endoscopy techniques or perfect them on anesthetized patients, preferably during ENT procedures. She's very excited to develop the collaborative program and hope it has great reception. So uh, we are so excited to bring Meg back on. We had her on Oh gosh, I'd have to look up what episode we had her on, but it ended up being our most popular episode ever, which I just love hearing. So um, since we are now in the 200s of our episodes, I wanted to bring her back on because she just has some wonderful words of wisdom, words of encouragement that I think we all need to hear at this time. So hope you all enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old-school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, Meg. Good morning. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me again. <laughs> Yay. Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to record this episode for everybody because, you know, what was interesting is I went back and I was, you know, looking at stats from previous episodes and I'm not a big stats person, but just was curious, you know, what, what episodes really struck a chord with the listeners and 
the episode that we had Dr. Meg Headland on had by far, like even more than double the amount of downloads that any other episode we'd ever had was. So I wanted to bring her back on because I think, you know, obviously everybody loved what she had to say, but I think now that we are, you know, sort of, sort of in COVID times, post COVID times, sometimes some people are still in the crazy thick of it. People are really reevaluating their lives and their careers. And, you know, is this what they want to be doing for the long haul? Is it not? Is it, you know, something they really just want to specialize in? Or, you know, I, I think I, I, I always try to find the silver lining of things. And I think that's kind of been one of the best things is that people have really gotten clear on a lot of what their priorities are. So. That was sort of a, a sidetrack that I didn't plan on taking this morning. But anyways, welcome, <laughs> hey, Meg. Thanks for having me again. Um, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, this is, um, it's been a heck of a year and a half um, for sure. I know um, just when it comes to people's careers, a lot of people are taking a step back. Um, you know, a lot of people have um, adjusted their workplace People are um, working, a lot of people are working from home or they're um, spending a lot of time away from their office and being more mobile, um, which is good in, in a sense that they have a lot more community, you know, with their families and friends to the extent that they can be with their families and friends these days. But it also, you know, causes a lot of strain on just being able to, you know, get out and get away and, uh, and, and so forth. But, you know, I, when, you know, choosing medicine, um, you know, I didn't, ha- I wasn't forced into reevaluating my life with a pandemic. So it, you know, it was a different <laughs> kind of path for me. Um, yep. I, grew up in a household where I was always exposed to some sort of health care. So my parents met in nursing school in a, in a junior college in Northern Illinois. Um, and they were registered nurses for a while. And then um, just kind of um, as a fluke, my dad was accepted to nurse anesthesia school because somebody dropped out. He applied late and the class was full and um, he was put on a waiting list and somebody dropped out and he was first on the waiting list and he was called the day before classes started. And um, so they packed me as a baby and, uh, or the, sorry, yeah, they packed me up and moved over to Des Moines, and, and there, there you go. And after he graduated, they moved to Southern Illinois, where I was raised. And my mom was a uh, registered nurse in kind of the surgical, a surgical nurse and a labor and delivery and area uh, for about 10 years and my dad was an anesthetist and then um my dad had cancer um he had thyroid cancer but it was the medullary form um there's several forms of thyroid cancer but medullary is very um the prognosis with that if it's metastatic which his had it was it was a little bit metastatic um it, it's not great and so um but and back in the early 80s with 1980 to be exact the treatment wasn't as advanced as it is now. And so, you know, my mom had aspirations of, you know, of, of going to college um, to get a bachelor's degree and, 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 and continuing her education. And my dad had always had ideas of supporting her through that. This kind of accelerated it and he wanted to see her through. So 
despite his treatments and, and so on, he she went back to college and decided that she wanted to kind of push through and, and become a physician. So long story short, she um, ended up going to medical school um, and becoming a physician. And um, she became a family practice physician and practiced until she retired. She retired for about a year. Um, So she was a family practice physician. And then she kind of went and worked for one of the state um, forensic mental health hospitals, which is where the criminally insane are placed, and worked there um, taking care of the um, inmate, uh, their medical needs, and then retired for about a year and then missed patient care enough um, that she now works in um, the small town that we I grew up in and that they still live in, in, in their ER as an ER physician. And she um, started working part-time about one 12 to 24 hour shift every couple of weeks or so. And now she works full-time <laughs> again. So, so I, I grew up with, you know, my dad is a nurse anesthetist and then my mom is a, f- a nurse turned physician. And so just a lot of different forms of healthcare coming at me. And then, and so it just, it was just kind of not uncommon for me to say, I want to be a doctor when people would ask me growing up, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I, and I really meant it. When my mom was in medical school, my dad was tasked with taking care of me and my younger brother. And when he had to go, he was called to do his job in the middle of the night or in the afternoon or any time that me and my brother were not in school or being tended by somebody else. We had to go with him and um, that involved going to the hospital. So the hospital was like a second home. Oh my goodness. And I always felt comfortable in the hospitals around sick people. And, you know, some people uh, I talked to, I was like, how can you stand the smell or how can you stand just, you know, being in a hospital where people die or people are always so sick. And it's just, I don't know. I just have always been there. So um, it doesn't bother me and it never has. So, so in college, I um, just naturally wanted to study the classes that, you know, made you pre-med and put you on the path to go to medicine. But I also ended up having cancer and so similar to my father. And so I needed to spend a lot of time. I had surgery and I needed to spend a lot of time having treatment to take care of that. And so um, I still wanted to do something in the realm of healthcare, but just I was exhausted and I really did not want to spend, you know, four years in medical school and then however many years in residency and then however many years as a young junior physician, like establishing practice and so on, you know, a lot of sleepless nights and clusters of nights and just a lot of just, it was just very demanding. And so um, I looked at the different healthcare careers that I could go into outside of being a physician that that were really interesting. And I had a a roommate in in college who was studying to be a speech and language pathologist. And she was really passionate about it. And it, you know, it seemed really interesting. I could still work with a lot of variety of patients in different settings. And, and, and so I um, looked into it. It looked really cool and took some of the, um, you know, introductory classes and I really liked it. And so there you go. (laughs) And so, um, I became a speech and language pathologist. 
Um, uh, so I did that and I kind of, I traveled the world doing my job and which settings did you, were you in the hospital settings Mike, or which settings? I was. So I, I did a lot of different things. So I worked in, um, acute care and I worked in subacute care. I worked in, here in the United States and I even worked overseas. I, um, my first job, um, out after grad school was actually in New Zealand. Um, I worked in a subacute rehab facility in New Zealand in Auckland, and it was a lot of fun. And I, I encourage anyone listening to go and explore and take a traveling job and do, do some of that. It's a lot of fun. You meet a lot of really cool people and see a lot of really interesting things and um, you'll never get to do it again like you can when you're young. You know, you, once you get married and have kids, you know, you can go on vacation and do those things, but when you're young and you're not tied down with your bills and your mortgage and all of those things, you know, there's just so much freedom that you have to do those things. So go do it. How did you, let, let me ask you, Meg, how do you know, cause I can just hear people now like, Oh my gosh, how do I even get a license in another country or how do I even find another yeah. placement or things like that? So I'd love to just kind of hear yeah, well, how I can, you tackled that. Yeah. I can tell you, it's probably a lot easier now than 21 years ago. Yeah. Um, I, you know, there's, of course, there's still was internet 20 years ago, but um, yeah. <laughs> I I responded to just an online ad and I did it all really by internet and phone. There really wasn't video chatting like there is now. It wasn't as developed and, you know, the bandwidth wasn't there. So just, you know, references and phone interviews. And then um, I worked with the embassy and consulate here in the United States to get a a visa to go work. And because at the time, New Zealand, and it's probably still the case, New Zealand um, was losing a lot of their youth and potential workforce to go do the exact same thing, go to different countries and explore and just travel and work. I had a, a job offer and a clean record and a valid passport. And they said, okay. And, um, and so I moved and awesome. yeah, and, and it was a lot of fun. So the first step is really just finding, um, finding the job and, and then making contact and, um, the rest can be worked out. And, and it, it actually was pretty quick, uh, relatively speaking. I started while I was still a graduate student looking, um, and I would say my, uh, you know, in my master's program, now I think things are kind of starting to move towards um, a doctorate program these days for speech and language pathology. But when I was a graduate student, it was a master's, it was a terminal master's um, for uh, clinical. And so it was probably the fall to like early winter that I started looking for a job. And by May, I was ready to go. So awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So just, it's a very, very long flight to New Zealand. So just <laughs> be prepared, um, for that. And, um, I did, I did fly out for Christmas that year, um, and, and met them. So, so there's that, you know, you, you may want to fly out and, and kind of investigate the place or, you know, on, um, anywhere, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, New Zealand, it could be Ireland or England or France or Germany or, you know, China, I don't know, somewhere you, you want to, you've always wanted to go. So, um, but if you have the means and you want to do it, it's, it's, 
definitely a once in a lifetime opportunity and I encourage that. So, um, how, so long, yeah. how long did you stay in New Zealand? Um, let's see, but six to six months ish. Cool. Yeah. Yep. So, um, yeah, so it was a lot of fun. Um, I would do it again in a heartbeat and, um, I've been wanting to go back and, um, again, uh, life has just gotten in the way and it's been 20 years and I keep saying, I'm going to go back next year. I'm going to go back next year. I'm going to go back next year. And it just, and now it's been 20 years. So and I can't believe it's been that long, but, um, <laughs> so yeah. So my first job, uh, out of grad school was that, and then I came back and, and then started, uh, I worked a little bit more just in, um, some long-term care and sniff and then just some full-time and then some PRN work here and there. And then I decided to pursue a PhD. I kind of knew there was more I wanted. I just kind of wasn't sure deep down what it was. So I pursued, I, I pursued a PhD. I thought, okay, maybe it's just, you know, this, just deeper knowledge of this, this field. What is it? How long were you, had you been working clinically at that point? Um, at that point, um, by the time I started my PhD, about a year. Yeah, a year. And so, um, so I, I, uh, went down to Alabama to, to start my PhD and I was there for, um, two and a half years and um, because I had my master's degree, I, I didn't have to do that sort of coursework. So I finished all the way up to close to um, where I would kind of start my pilot project and, and defend. And I just, I, I don't know, I, I wasn't feeling it. And it was just a good kind of time segue to go explore other things. And so um and, and what happened in the department had nothing to do with me. It was just a departmental issue. And um, I, I still adore many of the people that are at South and it's, it's a great program overall and um, good people, good people. I still go back to Mobile to visit and um, talk to a lot of people there very regularly. So not, nothing bad to say. Um, so I came back home to Illinois and, just kind of worked and, and moved to Northern Illinois, um, where there was the position and ended up, um, eventually having a private practice working with early intervention. So there's a whole other different field. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I got married and finally kind of decided just working, um, just with some kiddos that were just really had a lot of genetic and, um, congenital issues that, Maybe, maybe medicine is something I should just go back and, and think about. And so, um, in order to go to medical school, you ha- there are certain prerequisites you have to take, you know, biology, chemistry, organic chemistry, physics, genetics, biochemistry, et cetera. So I, I feel fu- I fulfilled all those things. I took the MCAT and I applied and I'm like, well, I thought, the worst thing they can tell me is no. The best thing they can tell me is yes. And so I got a couple yeses and that's all I needed. And then that was that. So, um, so that was kind of my roundabout way to getting to medicine. It was just kind of a, um, this lingering feeling that stuck with me, um, through all of these, you know, different twists and turns in my life that, I just couldn't ignore. And 
So this is one of those times in, in life where it, it might be a twist and turn for somebody, you know, this COVID situation. And if it's something that you can't ignore, then it might be time to take a closer look at, you know, what you truly you know, want to do, especially if, you know, there are budget cuts, you know, not everybody can work in a hospital, a big hospital with a lot of funding or government grants or things like that, you know, that there are a lot of places that have closed. So, um, or just have had to have a lot of layoffs. How, if, would you share, Meg, how, about how old were you when you went back to med school? Um, or see. went to med school, yeah. I should say. When I went, to, I started in 2008. So I was just about to turn 32. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. And and my mom, uh, when she went back, um, she was uh, the same age. So, yeah. Yeah. I had no children. She had two children. Yeah, yeah. I just, and that's how I feel about getting my PhD. I just, it won't leave me alone. I've been wanting to do it for forever. And I was always like, and and at this point it's going to be, I'm going to be 40 by the time I start, but I just, I've reached the point that I just don't care. Like, I just feel like the feeling's never going to go away. And I don't care if I'm going to be 40 Mm -hmm. (laughs) working on my PhD. I have two kids. I'll figure it out. And I I had that conversation with myself. I thought, well, I'm going to be, you know, by the time I graduate, 36, 37, uh, from medical school, but I'm going to be that age anyway. Am I going to be happy at that point or what, what am I going to, what am I going to be? And it's just a few years. So I'm not going to be that much older. So how, you know, how do I want to play this? Um, and then, you know, of course, when it comes to medical school, it's really not just medical school. There's also a residency attached. Yes, you are a physician when you when you graduate medical school. You are a physician, but you know there there are um, very limited options for somebody who just graduates from medical school. You you know you have to have some sort of training under your belt, at least one year of an internship in order to become a general practitioner, at least. Um, but in order to kind of have some sort of way to, to pay back loans, especially <laughs> you have to complete a residency and they're anywhere from three to geez, 12 years, just depending on what you decide. And so, yeah. I, you know, initially when I went to medical school, I really thought I wanted to be a surgeon and I really like, this is really morbid and I don't want any listener to take this the wrong way, but I really like cutting people <laughs> Yeah, that's <laughs> terrible. That is but what it is. I like fixing things. And, um, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it just gives me a thrill to just like have, to see something wrong with somebody and just like go, go to them and just kind of fix them and then be done, you know? Um, but, um, that is very intense. And I, by the time I would be done with residency, I would be 40 something and not sleep a lot. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I like my sleep. So um, the field of anesthesiology is is great, not just because it also involves sleep, but because um, I, you know, at the end of the day, I don't, I don't have to go to, I, I can leave my, my day behind me and yeah. um, it's, it's nice. Good. Yeah. 
So awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing all that. It's, yeah. it's, yeah, like I said, I just feel like there's so many people that are sort of just at a crossroads right now and, you know, they just don't know if they want to dive deeper into this field, into another field. And I just think it's so inspiring when people do things later in life and not, you know, not, not saying 25 is later in life. Cause I think some people no. think like after grad school, life's over, you know, no, no it's not, it's just, no people, sometimes you got to do some more yeah. living. Yeah. yeah. And I think, um, when it now it, it's, it used to be, you know, if you applied as a, as a, what we call a non-traditional student, um, it, it didn't necessarily hurt you, but it didn't necessarily help you either. It just was kind of a, hmm, kind of thought. But now it's very desirable. And I, I really, you know, I don't, I don't want to knock the younger generation, but there are a lot of concerns about work ethic when it comes to this, the two, two younger generations. And when you have somebody who's gone out and, and experienced what it's like to um, be part of the workforce and be part of a team. And, and when it when part of a team, when, when the bottom line matters and patients do matter, um, it, it counts for something. People who are non-traditional today are much stronger applicants than they used to be. It's- Thank you for sharing that. That's, that's really interesting. Cause I think I, I was reading a article, I don't, maybe it was like a few months ago about like people in there was like turning 40, considering a career change. Like, should you go to med school or should you pursue a PhD or something like that? And it said something like, you know, no, you're not, you, you don't appeal to any of these, you know, you're too old. It was like all the negatives. And I was like, mm-hmm. I don't believe anything in this article at yeah. all. No, so. no. Um, I have, several colleagues, um, new colleagues, um, where I work that have just graduated from residency that actually are older than me. Um, one, we have just somebody who just started, who was a resident of mine six weeks ago, and he's three years older than me. And I'm not going to say how old I am. Yeah, that's okay. But (laughs) I wore Z Cavaricis in high school. Okay. So, so, Awesome. Um, yeah. Well, thanks, nice. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, and you know, and anybody who's, who's considering, I did have one of your listeners reach out to me from the last podcast who was considering a career change. And, um, I talked to her a- about it. And, um, so if anybody is considering, um, medicine, I'm, I'm more than happy to, to talk about that. So awesome. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Do you have any, any more, any final words of wisdom for anybody looking to, you know, make a big change during crazy COVID times? Um, you know, um, be smart about it, you know, have a backup plan, have a contingency. Um, I, I think change is good, but I also think, you know, if you're, especially if you have people relying on you, you know, you should have a backup plan, but you know, don't, don't leave yourself with lingering doubt. Um, cause that, oh, that, that eats away at you. Let me tell you, um, it, it lasts a long time. Um, but the rewards, um, the rewards are good. The caveats though, that come with going to medical school, you know, the debt can be substantial. I will say that, um, I, I do have quite a bit of debt. Um, fortunately I fell in love with a career path that does pay me well. 
pays me very, very well. Um, I'm not going to say how well, but you can look up anywhere, kind of the median salary for anesthesiologists. But just know that the biggest downfall um, for medical school is just the amount of money that it costs um, to go to medical school. Um, but also know that for primary care, there's loan repayment. And and just, you know, if your heart is there, you'll find a way. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. This is very inspiring, Meg. Thank you. I hope... Hope this this helps somebody that's thinking, sitting on the fence, wondering what they want to do with their lives at yes. this point. So oh, I think we've all been there. One one more thing for PhDs: yeah. a PhD might be a little bit easier, if, especially if you don't have a um, already a, a job, and even if you do have a have a have a career established with speech language pathology. But they often need a lot of help with teaching and research, and and um, you can often trade off with tuition and. Um, you know, living expenses that way. So a PhD is a wonderful, like if you don't want to go to do the medicine route, I, I understand that. That's a, that's a big, um, that's a big step. But if you really are thinking about your PhD, I really encourage that because there's a, there's a lot of ways to pay for that. So. Awesome. Well, thank you, Meg. I really appreciate this. Yeah, sure. Anytime. Anytime. All right. Well, thank your thank your kids for letting you chat on, on oh, vacation. They're on their tablets. You know how they are. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again, Meg. I really appreciate it. Take care. Okay. Have a good one. You yep. too. Bye. Bye. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny B. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.